are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, hey, I almost slipped on a banana peel. Why would someone drop a banana peel on the ground? Is it because this episode of Rootbound is sponsored by bananas? The most comical fruit. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm the host of the show, and the show is called Rootbound, which is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest to join me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them, and then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, I'm not going to talk too much here at the beginning of the show because we've got a jam-packed episode, but all I'm going to say is that parasitic plants are a thing, and it's really amazing, and uh, today we're going to hear about two parasitic plants, uh, one that you've probably never heard of, but you probably should, and the other one that you probably have heard of, but maybe we're not aware that it was a parasitic plant. And uh, with that, let's just jump right in to today's episode and meet our guest. Finally, I realized you're probably a parasite. You're the parasite. Exactly what a parasite would say. Parasite. Hi, Swifty. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Do you have a plant to share with us today? Oh, I absolutely have a plant to share with you today. It's one of my favorite plants of all time. It's called Straga. Interesting. Okay, I, I only know what this is because I've heard you talk about it on another podcast. I'd never heard of it before, but I, what I recall, it's super fascinating. Also, if I'm not wrong, this is the first parasitic plant that we're talking about on the show. Not to scoop you as far as like its, its factor, but it, like it, I'm very interested to talk about it because I, I don't know really anything about those. And yes, anyway, Striga. I, I was saying it's Striga in my mind, but it's Striga. So I love that you said that. Um it's not Striga, it's Striga. And if you were to Google Striga, S-T-R-I-G-A, the first thing that would come up would be something from The Witcher, whether it's like the TV show or the books. It's not. It's not a demon. It's not a demonic witch. It's a plant. Uh, but okay. the, the name Striga is Latin for witch because it has a bewitching oh. effect on its host. Um, so it's colloquially oh. called witchweed. Uh, so the two things are intricately linked, but it does really grind my gears that every time I Google the plant that I'm studying, uh, something from pop culture comes up instead. <laughs> yeah, it's like Google has uh, affected your ability to research her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, come um, on, Google, pick up on the algorithms. Okay, so let's, before we get too into the weeds, haha, so to speak, <laughs> about uh, about the plant, why is it meaningful to you? I think you said you're studying it, but let's get into it a little more specifically. Like, why did you choose this plant? So way back when, when I was a wee child and I was starting out with research, the very first lab that I joined in my undergrad was studying Striga and I didn't know anything about parasitic plants. I didn't know anything about plants. And it just absolutely fascinated me that, that plants could be parasitic. Like I was so young, I had no idea the concept of it. So it was the very first parasitic plant I ever learned about. And it's so devastating. And I just, I latched onto this, this incredible story of this plant um, and I've been working with it for a decade now. So it's just, it's, it's become such a big part of my life. And it's important because it's an ac- um, agriculturally and economically important plant, but also because it's been a part of my life for so long. Great. Well, let's get into that story because I, I remember little details about it. And I remember it being one of those things where like, how do I not know this? This seems <laughs> like it's like super important for like that it should be common knowledge. Yeah. But like, so let, let, tell, tell, tell us the story of Striga. Yeah. So I am cheating a little bit. I'm saying Striga, which is an entire genus. Uh, there okay. are several species of Striga. So I will tell you the story of the Striga species that matters the most to Americans. So um, there is a Striga, Striga asiatica. It's got a really pretty red flower. It is all Strigas are um, all economically important Strigas are native to Africa. And after World mm-hmm. War II, a tank came back from Africa with one plant um, to, I can't remember the the base in North Carolina, 
but um, that plant infected 500,000 acres of farmland in North and South Carolina for over 50 years. And the government spent millions and millions of dollars pumping ethylene gas into the soil to terminally germinate these plants um, because it was wrecking such havoc. Uh, Striga uh, specifically devastates our grains. So like corn, Mm. rice, um, pearl millet, uh, sorghum. It was an issue in... um, and rice in North Carolina, I think. And um, mm-hmm. so they they spent all this money to get rid of it. And that's kind of how American scientists started to really focus on Striga. And that's how my lab got involved. And uh, now there's, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of scientists just in America alone studying parasitic plants because of this event. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really wow. it's really crazy that it just took one plant to infect 500,000 acres. Wow, oh, man. Okay, man. I have so many questions, and this is one of the ones I feel like we just have to be okay. We're not covering everything here because it's yeah. so fascinating. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. Let's. I want to know how that happened. Like, it must be a prolific seed producer, or does it like yes. spread in other ways? Or yeah, talk about how it spread. So I was I was talking to some undergrads today about how plants have to choose where to put their energy. And so st- mm-hmm. what Striga does is they don't make one big seed, but they make hundreds of thousands of teeny tiny microscopic seeds. I was really lucky oh, wow. to go to Kenya to see Striga um, a few years back, and I had um, Striga seeds that fit within the ridges of my fingerprint. Like that's how small Whoa. the seeds are. <laughs> so not only are there hundreds of thousands of them, but they are dust-like, so they can just go wherever they please and then they also persist in the soil for years um so they just have a combination of traits that just make them incredibly um we call them noxious weeds like weeds that are really Mm -hmm. good at being invasive um yeah and strike is kind of like the perfect storm that's interesting i i mean so as you may have noticed i'm not definitely a plant expert i have a podcast about (laughs) plants but it's really like a way for me to learn about plants and i uh, when I think about like a, a plant that's leaves move because of the wind, I'm thinking about like maple leaves, maple mm-hmm. seeds or these things that have like, but I never thought about like such a small seed. Like that is amazing. Like Orchids that, are wow. similar. Um, orchids mm. are very dust-like um, and be, and you can kind of think of them similarly, right? We know orchids don't just germinate, right? You have to have like mm-hmm. super special situations and that's because there's nothing in that seed. There is no nutrients for that seed to germinate and sustain life on its own. And it's the exact same thing with Striga. It's the, the plant, I mean, to anthropomorphize plants, which is not scientifically sure. appropriate, but here we are on a podcast. So the yeah. plant chose its path and it said, I'm going to produce hundreds of thousands of seeds. They're not going to have energy, uh, but I'm going to produce the most seeds and I'm going to be able to outcompete that way. Um, and yeah. then I, I'm, I'm, I'm filling in the blanks here, but because it is a parasitic plant, it, it can get its its other stuff elsewhere, I guess, the energy it needs. Yeah, yeah. so Striga, um, the genus actually has a couple different things in it, but for the most part, there's a lot of big scary words that we use to define parasitic plants, but Striga um, needs a host to complete its life cycle, so it's an obligate parasite, but mm-hmm. it is also hemiparasitic because it still is capable of photosynthesizing. There are ah. other parasites that are holo parasites. They are totally achlorophyllous. They don't, they're not green. They don't photosynthesize. So Striga can produce its own energy, but it needs the host to even germinate. Um, so it, it's really, it can't live without a host. Fascinating. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about how that process happens and just the, this, the concept of a, a parasitic plant in general but let's use Striga's example. Like, what happens, and why, and yeah, let, let's let's yeah tell okay, tell so, maybe let, yeah let's start from the seed maybe. Yeah, let's start from the seed. Uh, uh, and so the idea is that uh, these parasites have co-opted um, signals from the host. So when you're a host plant, um, you don't have a lot of options, right? You Host plants can't just get up and move when there's no nutrients in the soil. They just have Mm -hmm. to suffer. So host plants have different ways of getting help. And so they send out these help signals. Some of them go to like mycorrhizae, for example. Mm -hmm. Striga has eavesdropped on that signal and learned that that help signal means there's a plant nearby. 
So a strigus seed will receive a signal uh, from the host plant and it says there's a host nearby time to germinate. So then the strigus seed will germinate and within like 72 hours it has to attach and that attachment has to be like a, a it's like think of it like a vampire it has to tap into the vessels like the the xylem and the phloem the blood flow of the plant in order uh-huh. to survive because it only has 72 hours worth of energy or something like that um I actually yeah, yeah wow specifically know the hours but um sure and so then it, it taps in and it forms what defines a parasite which is called a hostorium um there are things in this world that look like parasites but if they don't have that hostorium they're not classified as a parasite um, okay I, I think i know an example here but first yeah well i think so the one plant i had talked about the podcast not too long ago which i know is not a parasite but maybe it's a hostorium is um spanish moss which not I a parasite. do not believe even, even though it hangs off of trees mm-hmm. it doesn't have a, what is a hostorium though I, I i'm assuming that spanish moss i just was told it's not a parasite yeah I, you know so it's yeah it's a hostorium truly is just this specialized organ that evolved specifically 12 different times independently in, oh, in wow. the history of plants that is capable of um, attaching and then penetrating into a host plant to tap into the vasculature. Like that's that's kind of its definition. It's the morphological physiological link between the host and the parasite, according to Joe Kite, 1969. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so fascinating. Okay, um, wow. Uh, I, I had I had a different realm that I wanted to ask, but I want to talk more about that because when I started thinking about parasitic plants, it was actually I heard you on the Planthropology podcast. Um, uh, I was thinking about parasitic plants. And I'm like, okay, you know, we we par- humans have parasites. They're generally thing in the animal kingdom or like in protozoan kingdoms. And then there's like fungus, which can behave like parasites, and they can infect both like animal kingdom and plant kingdom. But like, is there any relation? I w- my my brain was going to like sci-fi. Like, could a plant ever infect like an animal, like a fungi can, or I don't know. Like, like, just, yeah, I, that was a I lot. Think, that wasn't really any questions, but I'm happy to no, hear what you respond. To I that. think the plant version of that is carnivorous plants. Like, it doesn't look the same, um, but uh-huh. it's plants that can eat animals is a carnivorous oh, plant. Sure. Um, so kind uh, of yeah. it's it's similar in that way but um something that i don't know and i don't think i'm scooping myself by saying this but um <laughs> i think would be really interesting is to look at the uh the crossover of genes and developmental processes that are similar between um, parasitic fungi parasitic bacteria parasitic xyz and plants i think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting avenue of research because there we've been finding out in my lab like just walk to any of my friends and ask them um that across those 12 lineages which are super not related there Mm. are similar processes and and genes that have been either co-opted or uh, neo-functionalized to become parasitic so there are so many similarities between these 12 very distinct lineages um, what's not to say that there aren't some similarities between parasitic yeah, what's that parasitic term called? Is it, XYZ. Is that neo-functionalization or, or different, oh, oh. the thing where you have independent uh, uh, properties evolving separate from each other? Yeah, you is got it right. Convergent evolution. evolution. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah, nice. That's fascinating. And I guess I guess what you're saying is like maybe there's. I mean, I remember uh, like uh, reading about how certain like you know mi- microscopic organs would like steal the organs of other ones and like you know take on their properties and maybe some of these even though they're different genuses very distantly related maybe they had some of the same influences Mm -hmm. that they co-opted or like yeah fascinating to like develop that yeah i didn't say there's there's (laughs) um there's a big process in bacteria um called horizontal gene transfer that allows right. for all of this sharing of genes. Um, and that specifically is what's happening in parasitic plants. And that's what oh. allows these plants to um, effectively attack their hosts is because they have some kind of like insight into the genetic processes and they're, they're able to co-op a certain gene. And we can see that. We can see historically like um, my parasite, Striga, is an asterid. And um, there are other parasites that are asterids that have rosid 
genes. Roses and the steroids are not closely related. Um, and you can see like through molecular evolution that this was a rosa gene, but then it started to collect um, mutations. And so it's, you know, you can, it's really cool. Horizontal gene transfer is really cool, but that's kind of how wow. this process starts is they start to steal genes. Um, uh, one of my favorite papers I've ever read, the title is You Are What You Eat. And the parasites are becoming what they eat because they're stealing those genes from their host. Um, yeah. Oh, and so there's there's whoa. a lot of reason to believe that bacteria, horizontal gene transfer, plants, horizontal gene transfer, we might see similarities in how they become parasitic. That makes sense. I also, I think when you mentioned fungi too, and like the connection between plants and like the, the mycorrhizal connection, and mm -hmm. I can see that also happening too. Maybe it's also a nexus of bacteria and fungus and plants, right? That's a, like, soil's a pretty complicated thing with a lot going on, so... Yeah, super interesting. Um, okay, when you mentioned that Striga infects a bunch of different grains, that was a little surprising to me because often you think of like a parasite being a little bit specific of like what it chooses, and it's a little bit uh, interesting that it can attack all those different grains. Can you talk about that? So there's um, like a, a an ecological concept of where things become, everything is a generalist moving towards being a specialist. Um, but mm -hmm. there's different, like nothing's ever black and white. So Striga is a monocot specialist, but a mm -hmm. generalist within the monocots. So it I is see. very picky in that it loves monocots, but it'll it doesn't care what monocot, right? Um, it actually is wow, grasses, but um, it's uh, it's a it's a grass uh, specialist, and it um, sure. so anything that's poaceae, um, and so it is it is a specialist, but it's also a generalist. So it's it, but it's it's slowly. There's this theory that everything's moving towards becoming a specialist, except there is one Striga um, that is becoming or had has become a dicot specialist. So oh. if you look at the tree of life and you have Striga, Striga's ancestor grew on dicots. Striga grows on monocots. And so there's a reversion in one of the species oh. back to dicots, which is the most horrifying thing i've ever heard in my entire life because <laughs> striga already messes up all of our grains which are some of the most important food crops we have and then there's mm -hmm. one striga that's just like yes but also all of your legumes which is like 50 percent of all food it's absolutely unhinged wow wow okay <laughs> so let's get into that threat because you know it's interesting like that there's such a sounds like there's such a big threat to our food supply with this mm -hmm. parasitic plant why don't we all know about it like but yeah, I feel like we hear about drought and we hear about other things, but we don't hear about the threat of parasitic plants attacking our our food source. The really sad reality of it is it's it's native to Africa, and mm -hmm. it's just that it's kind of like not my circus, not my monkeys. It was in America, and America cared then, and there is a little bit of it still in Florida, but it's on indigofera, which is how we dye blue jeans, and people are like, meh, that's fine. Um, so we actually so successfully stopped it. Mm -hmm, yep. Um, wow. I think 10 years ago, they lifted the quarantine in North Carolina. Um, I have never been. I would love to. I lived in North Carolina, and I'd never yeah. like, been down there. I would love to actually see like the quarantine. So it never uh, escaped North Carolina? Uh, not as far as we know, no. Interesting. Oh, that is that is a really interesting like uh, um, tale of like success of controlling an invasive. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not very common, I guess. I'm, I talk about invasive plants a lot, right? And there's like so many. And this one well, it, could be so devastating. Yeah, it was successful. What's nice is that there, there, there's simple solutions. Is just germinate them, mm. and if they can't attach to something, they're dead. Um, ah, and like it, yeah, you mentioned that before that, with the ethylene gas. Like, mm -hmm. why? <laughs> so ethylene's just a seed. It's just a. It's just a hormone that germinates seeds. Um, mm. And so you just it's it's kind of just like uh, the plant doesn't have a, a choice. It just reacts to this and it germinates. Um, but because Striga and other parasitic plants need to attach to a host, they just immediately die without a host present. Um, yeah. And so there's other there's other ways to do it. Uh, but that was the most straightforward way of killing the host. And it was very, very, very expensive. That's why it can't be done like on a global scale. Interesting, interesting. Uh, um, okay, I think I have uh, maybe two more questions about this. this is so fascinating. <laughs> I could keep going, but okay. One is um, presumably there has to be lots of controls so that it doesn't happen again. I mean, people are always traveling. I don't know. Like I, I, I like step on some striga and it's in my shoe, and I bring it back and I, you know, go to my cornfield. I, I, 
how do we prevent this from happening again? So all of the scientists doing Striga research in America, there are, uh, we all have quarantine facilities that are, um, uh, there's certain levels of safety and, you know, the USDA has to check off on all of them and we all get audited like every two years. So in America, those who study Striga, it is very kept tight under lock and key. Um, same thing with like transporting Striga, you have to have permits and it's like a whole thing. But when I w- went to Kenya, um, their labs weren't under quarantine because it's just everywhere. Um, there was plan, no right? yeah. controlling it. Yeah. And then we, you know, we went on these tours to go see these plants. Um, it was the greatest experience of my whole life. I'd been like studying these plants forever and I finally got to see them. And then we had to like leave our shoes. <laughs> like we just left our shoes there because we couldn't oh, wow. take them home because we had been stepping in these striga fields, you know. So, um, but what about accidental for like people who aren't botanists? Oh, I mean that's fair. Um, yeah, it requires, you know, it requires a special germination stimulant, and it requires the striga to be at the right place at the right time. So mm-hmm. it's not gonna happen to your average Joe. Like, how many times does the average human being walk into a cornfield after they've gone on a trip to africa <laughs> interesting i mean it happened once though right like and yes, you know <laughs> that was just really unlucky or is in it, anyway that that's fascinating i i yeah okay what my my next question is about you know i have this um general understanding and it may not be true um that plant like like a weeds in their native habitat are less weedy because other things evolved with them and they can like you know handle it so in africa where striga is native like how have other plants or like how what what's this story there where it hasn't like completely like taken over this is a great question so striga is um an agricultural pest that means it devastates agricultural fields mm-hmm. so things that are agricultural crops typically aren't native they're you know Mm. bred beyond belief to something that looks nothing like their wild ancestors striga is from africa has evolved with um its typical host sorghum wild sorghum Mm. has so much natural variation that we are currently mining to breed into um create resistant um breeds of sorghum of xyz Mm. um so it to your point exactly striga in its natural habitat against its natural host has shown resistance striga against corn corn is not from africa no resistance Mm -hmm, corn mm -hmm. cannot handle striga um so that's where you see it affecting um crops and hosts the most is non-native crops yeah and i guess i guess probably has to do too with that uh you know uh monoculture aspect of agriculture where you have the same plant over and over again it's easier i think yeah, there's a similar story, I think, with rubber and a similar story with bananas, right, where you have... Rubber? Uh, was it, was, uh, rubber trees? It wasn't it wasn't a parasitic plant, but I think it was a fungus that almost wiped out all rubber trees in in um, South America. I, I haven't talked about this in the podcast yet. It's something I just had to top of my head, but most rubber is actually grown in uh, Southeast Asia because it's basically impossible to grow commercial rubber in its native habitat because of this... Uh, I think it's, it's a native... I think it's a fungus. Don't quote me on that. Maybe a bug. But anyway, if you try to grow rubber too close to each other in South America, it just gets it just gets destroyed because in its native habitat, rubber trees do not grow in plantations. They grow in a jungle setting where you have one tree every like several kilometers, right? That's fascinating. Um, and there is some people who've said that, you know, all it's going to take is just the wrong person with the wrong uh, tank tread or boot to deliver that to where most rubber production happens and, and and wipe it out and i think there's people doing similar things to try to like prevent that from happening for i rubber. genuinely thought we had moved past rubber trees i thought all rubber was synthetic at this point no i it's very very important for sure yeah it's still i think the best way to get rubber is from from those trees uh, cool. uh so yeah and i think bananas like there's a whole story about how i talked about that a few episodes ago how we like you know the 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 grow the Groh Michel banana is, was wiped out by I think mm-hmm. a fungus, but it, not a parasitic plant. Anyway, it, it's because it's because we grow them close together, and, and when a parasite is like, hooray, <laughs> we can yeah. we can spread like crazy. Um, fascinating. Um, oh, the other I, issue with Striga oh. is the damage is done by the time you see the plant. That's the other oh. hard part. That's what it's bewitching effect. Like it looks like drought until then, all of a sudden Striga comes up, and you're like, 
oh no, it's way worse than drought. It's a plant that will persist for 50 years in the soil bank. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, oh, yeah. that's super fast. Okay, it's a okay. nightmare. Oh, it's that, a true nightmare it's got a red. Plant. It's got a red flower. Striga asiatica has a red flower. There's Striga okay. hermonthica, which is called purple witchweed, um, and it's purple. And then there's Striga gesneroides, which is also purple. And there's 30 species of Striga. Those are just the three that I care about. <laughs> I can just imagine that's like really like poetic and scary image of like this fallow field with these red flowers popping up around yeah. it. That's really fascinating. Well, we, we went and saw cornfields and the, the fields where there's Striga, there's no corn. It's just purple flowers and husks. Like that's it. It's... Whoa. When Striga is present, I think it reduces crop yield up to 90%. Like, there's no beating it. Whoa. It's, it's truly horrific, and no one ever talks about it. I actually I have a an ongoing debate with my advisor because there is a quote from a paper from 1980-something um, that says Striga causes upwards of $10 billion in crop damage every year from the 80s. Wow. So, like, what wow. does that mean in today's world? Um, how much crop yeah. damage is actually it's so it's devastating absolutely devastating wow and what what happens to the field of striga now that it doesn't have any hosts anymore that has killed all its hosts um theoretically you wouldn't plant there again sure, um, or you would sure. plant like an off crop like something like a legume that oh sure would yeah not be a host but uh because in that area of africa farming fields are so f- few and far between Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really have a choice. They continually mm. replant year after year. And so um, our lab doesn't do this, but other labs, part of their um, effort is to go and try to um, be like, here's a different variety that you can grow that won't grow striga as much. And they try to, mm. um, it, a little, it kind of comes across as like white savior complex, but sure, it is trying yeah. to just find solutions that aren't just in, like, uh, a, another solution for striga is just fertilizing. But nitrogen is incredibly expensive too, so um, mm-hmm. that's also not an option. So we try to try to do some stuff, um, and there's some incredible research coming out of Africa as well. Um, Stephen Runo in Kenya is the head honcho um, of Striga, as far as I'm concerned. He's incredible, um, and the work his lab does is really amazing. Um, and they're working on breeding Striga or breeding sorghum that's resistant to Striga. Um, it's just. Uh, People are set in their ways. Like no one wants mm-hmm. to eat this brand new grain that may be a little chewier than what you're used to. Like they want mm-hmm. what they want. So it's it's hard to convince people to grow something else. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's in- I mean, that's a really interesting thing that has come up several times in the show about like t- these weird decisions. We say we're going to do it this way, and then like there might be a better way, but like. Well, we've just been doing it this way, so we're going to keep doing it this way, regardless of what else is yeah. an option. It's it's pretty. That's pretty interesting. Um, but it also but like, like I guess, as oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, Please. as scientists, like we come in without understanding any of like the cultural relevance mm-hmm. or like any of the context of all of these decisions, and we just say this is how you're going to answer your problem, but we don't really understand all of the other layers. So I think as scientists, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to. Um, that actually applying our our discoveries you know yeah and it's also it's really fascinating it's a really complicated topic to think about too because i think like the like multi-layers of history and colonialism there like like you know corn is a super important crop in africa but corn is also not from africa and that has to do with these like complicated systems (laughs) and yeah so so like striga is not a problem if you're not growing things in certain ways and yeah. but those ways people grow things now have to do with like market demands that are pressure from economies that are have external factors. Yeah, it, it all comes back to colonialism sucks. That it all just comes yeah, back totally. to that. He's a guy from the island across the pond that gave us colonialism, Hugh Grant and the plague. Wow, that's a really fascinating topic. Uh I we could talk about striga all day. Uh, but do you mind if I share a plant with you? No, I'm so excited for you okay. to tell me what your plan is. I have right. like a pen and pencil. I'm going to take notes. Uh, so I, I, I'm i kind of cheating here a little bit because I feel like you might have more to say about this plant than me, perhaps, just because of your background. But I'm oh, going to no. <laughs> tell you why it's meaningful to me. And then I think you're going to be able to guess what it is. Um, and this has to do with like uh, pretty early on in the podcast. Like I started this podcast so I can, lear- start, I can learn more about plants. So it's like a way to like... It's like my own little like school to learn about plants. 
And so I, I haven't, you know, I haven't been that good at identifying plants to relatively recently. Um, but early on the podcast, bef- before I even talked about this plant, but I had read about it in other times, um, we were in Switzerland and it was early, it was in spring. And I looked up into a tree and I was like, I know what that is. <laughs> Do you know what the plant I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. But I'll let you, I'll let you say it. <laughs> it's, it's mistletoe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which I wrote is, down, which is as a, you were talking, I was writing down, I was like, Castilea, Cascuta, Rafflesia, and then you said Switzerland, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, mistletoe, which is uh, uh, probably the most well-known parasitic plant. Do you agree? Yeah, um, for sure. Even though I think most people don't know it's parasitic, I guess. That might be a shock to some listeners that it's parasitic. Um, it is also, I learned just yesterday the term hemiparasitic it is also that right it is not a fully mm-hmm. parasitic plant it it has those green leaves and it can photosynthesize and it only needs to get its water and other organ inorganic minerals from from its host it doesn't um doesn't need to uh get the products of photosynthesis from its host which which is pretty cool um all right so i think jump in anywhere you have anything to say because like i said you are a parasitic plant expert and for me it's just like I learned a few fun facts and dazzling details, but I, I think it's a really interesting plant. One, one thing I, I didn't quite dig deep enough into, and maybe you have something to say about, it, is I, I feel like I feel like mistletoe doesn't tend to damage its hosts very much, or is that not true? Um, it's kind of like one mistletoe won't take down a whole tree, but oftentimes you don't see one. You'll see like dozens in a tree because they're yeah. bird dispersed, and so yes. the bird will favor certain trees to like roost in and then you'll get 100 mistletoe and that'll take down a tree that makes sense okay so that (laughs) leads me to you know one of the things i like talking about the show a lot is is names of things i really like etymology and you know what the name mistletoe where what that name means i don't i know it's it's all i know is it's part of like norse mythology uh but i don't know the etymology of it. it it it's it's a little this may be apocryphal this one specific piece but essentially and excuse my language it essentially means shit stick (laughs) (laughs) missile is is in in some interpretations there's other interpretations that are a little bit more nuanced but some interpretation that means dung and toe is like a is like it's old english for ton and it means like dung stick and essentially has to do with the fact that the birds you know take a shit and then it, it it falls and it sticks to the to the branches of the tree and it's like the seeds are sticky even after they pass through the birds and so they attach that way and so yeah apparently people knew that for a very long time that that's how they reproduce and the name is coming from the fact that they they stick the seeds stick to the to the uh branches of trees but that's also true of the scientific name the genus that mistletoe is not one thing it's actually several things the genus yes. you're specifically talking about is viscum um mm. and the the sticky stuff is called viscum <laughs> it's the uh-huh, same okay, thing okay okay um, yeah okay so, interesting yeah i was gonna bring that up yeah viscum album is the most common mm-hmm. uh, one even like such other viscum uh, species in europe and uh, around the world um yeah. I, yeah that makes sense it's like viscous i guess right it's like yeah it's like yeah probably and then album means white i assume because of the white berries which mistletoe yep. has white berries i think i think a lot of people don't know that mistletoe has white berries either like when you're yeah uh, our common understanding of mistletoe is just like the hanging under a doorway during Christmas, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Weird, a little bit weird. Um, but yeah, it has white berries. The other one, though, which I learned just now, there is another genus that is also known as mistletoe from North America called Forodendron. Yep. And that's always so fascinating to me how you have like, it's mistletoe, but they're like not related whatsoever. And it, it, yep. I assume it's just because some European was like, oh, that looks like the thing I remember from Europe. I'm going to call it the same thing. They're they're all in the same order. So they're all within the order Santalales. Ailes is order names. A-C-E are family names. So they're all within the order. I think they're also in the same family too, I think, maybe. Uh, Some of them are in Santalaceae, but I don't think all of them are. There's one that's like Miss Miss Mistracy. I can't say it. Um, It's a super tropical uh, mistletoe. But yeah, so Forodendron is the one in North America. And you can find it everywhere uh it's very oh, very very common like wildly common um yeah super i guess start paying attention <laughs> and so it's interesting that you know that they look so similar but they're not related do you know anything about 
that like morphology or like how we decided they're different genuses or you don't have to know the answer to that it's just something i was thinking about and couldn't get to the bottom no of this is so funny my lab mate studies yeah. mistletoe so he would be the uh-huh. guy to talk to you about <laughs> it but um i it's it's hard because a lot of the ways we study plant taxonomy is based off of morphological features especially the mm-hmm. flower the flower is always going to be the most mm-hmm. distinctive thing on a plant um yeah but now with how sequencing has become cheaper and cheaper um everything is based off of what we call phylogenetics so it's how yeah. close is the DNA related? And this is, do not quote me on this, but like sure, seven yeah. times out of 10, the phylogeny supports the morphology, which is really yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, but most, that's most of the cool. time these days, everything is based off of genetics. Like, is this genetically similar um, to mm-hmm. XYZ? Yeah, so that, they might okay, that, look that the same. Sense. But, their but they're are, they're yeah. genetically different. Interesting. But yeah, I guess I assume I would assume those genus names are older than than the genetic stuff. So that probably was, who knows? But maybe not. Know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, do you know when? Um, like I had to look this up for Striga, so I want to know if you know for mistletoe who was the first to report it. No, I'm sorry. Because I found I found Striga asiatica was in uh, species Planetarum from Linnaeus, and I lost my mind. I was like, wow, Linnaeus knew about Paris. Like, of course he knew. He knew everything. I bet you, um, I bet you it was, I was trying to go back a little bit back in time quite a bit to look at mistletoe. One of my favorite things is go Google books and like go back yeah. pretty far. And it's, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. Like it was actually a little yeah. bit hard because it was just like so much. And even into the 1600s, there was people talking about it. And it's because getting to some of the fun facts, it was a super important cultural plant in a lot of European cultures. Yeah. Um, and I think it really comes down to because, you know, it, in a lot of cultures, it's a symbol of fertility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because in winter, it's still green. And you can look at this tree that has lost all its leaves and see this like burst of green. And when you're like a druid and don't know what pareticism is, you're like, that is a sign of life. And I guess it is <laughs> kind of a sign of life, but it didn't have any of those, those negative connotations we understand now. It just looked like a symbol of, of, of spring in the dead of winter. And so a symbol of fertility. And I think, I guess it's not clear, but I think that's where the whole kissing under mistletoe comes because if you want to celebrate fertility, you got to start with something. And I yeah. think that's, I think that's where that comes from uh, eventually. Um, it was symbols for lots of other things. I'm going to, I'm going to read something I found, which is pretty, yeah. a pretty fun, uh, uh, quote from a book that's called Bell's New Pantheon, a historical dictionary of the gods, demigods, heroes, and fabulous personages of antiquity, published in 1790. And uh, this says, uh, the archdruid attended by a prodigious number of people and and dressed in white, ascending the tree with a consecrated golden knife or pruning hook, cropped the mistletoe, which he received in his robe, amidst the rapturous exclamations of the people. Having secured this sacred plant, he descended the tree. Then bulls were sacrificed, and the deity invoked uh, to bless his own gift and render it efficacious in those distempers for which it should be administered. The mistletoe was considered as a sovereign remedy in all diseases and as a preservative against apparitions or any effect from evil spirits. Oh, wow. So that's a druid writing about its use in druid culture. And um, yeah, it speaking of its uh, effect of uh, effect on those distempers which uh, should be administered it, it, there's a lot of uh, documentation about use in traditional medicines all over Europe it was well known that there's also a lot of uses all over within different cultures about its use to to, to fight ghosts <laughs> most basically like or evil spirits like there's like you know and that's one of the things that seems to have spread across different cultures i found it you know in the druids you know uh uh, effects from evil spirits but like in germany apparently you can bring it into a haunted house and it will force the the ghost to come out um and uh some other things like that so it really interesting th- there's a ton there and honestly i i only scratched the surface of its like cultural uh yeah um importance but it's one of those things that has really just followed through time and it's it, it was so important culturally that i think at least people who come from a European tradition, you know, like most people also in, the, in a large portion of people in the United States, this European tradition, it sticks with us in this as a symbol for Christmas, right? Yeah. Uh, even though we've all kind of forgotten it's like, uh, you know, pre-Christian origins as far mm-hmm. as our culture. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about, I just knew about like the 
vague Norse mythology about like mistletoe killing someone uh, and something with Balder. Someone oh died. yeah, um, I think didn't Loki? I saw something that Loki give gave it to somebody as yeah. a trick or something. Yeah. I, I didn't get into that. I know. <laughs> yeah, I. I, I yeah, that was all I, I didn't start... know about like any of the other cultural stuff. Yeah, super super fascinating uh, plant. Yeah, and uh, and I I don't I one thing I didn't find is like when we realized it was a parasite. I feel like that was a little mm. bit like we've been been yeah. I do know Darwin wrote about it um, oh, and he knew it was a parasitic plant. So at least by then, um, but I don't know. I don't know if it was, you know, if Visco was in a species planetarium or anything. I don't know if who figured it out. Um, Good question. Would I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I, even I, I'm sure Linnaeus knew about it, whether he knew the parasitic aspect. And what was that word you used again? That, that organ, the, what? The Historium? The Hostorium. I assume mistletoe has a Hostorium, right? Yes, they all do. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, whether that was something defined yet. Yeah, that seems like a pretty tricky thing to, like, discover, I guess. I mean, when you, like, go... I've never, like, handled mistletoe attached to a tree. Like, can you, like, see the you Hostorium? Or you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna, Does it look I'm like a, roots? It, yeah, so Hostorium are typically modified roots, but it's basically, like... It's like a little bush and then it has like a little stem and then the stem just like deadens into the branch and it just yeah it and looks you can like see it like going in yeah it, it looks very yeah, unnatural true. like it's two different things kind of like convergence of two rivers like one's green and one's brown kind of interesting interesting um yeah so i think that's all i wrote down about mistletoe again i'm sure we could talk for for hours about mistletoe but it is a really interesting plant and it's the it's the uh first parasitic plant that i recognized in the wild and the only one so far because i don't i don't honestly like it's the only one i could name and uh, now i can name striga but that was only since i listened to that episode of plantropology with you on it um so like, you don't have to yeah. tell me where you are, but I can tell you, like in North America, that you can find Phorodendron almost anywhere in like southeast. There's also um, something called Castilea or uh, a scarlet oh. paintbrush. That's a prairie plant. Oh um, yeah. That's oh, that's uh, I know that one. So I'm in Northern Virginia, so I'm sure I can find it some trees around okay. here. Um, you can yeah. find mistletoe. <laughs> okay, I gotta look for Phorodendron there. The 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 uh Cala, Ca, Castilea is that what you said Castilea yep Castilea I I was born in Texas and the whole like Indian paintbrush thing mm-hmm. is was like a whole thing but I I only recently realized that it was a, a parasitic plant as well that's super fascinating yeah it parasitizes the Texas blue bonnets and no one talks about that that's wild to whoa. me whoa yeah. whoa <laughs> that is true I mean they're like thought of together as like the same pretty wildflowers but mm-hmm. one's attacking the other that's really interesting it's I think there's something, you know, plants are kind of an interesting thing for uh, most people. We, I talked about this concept uh, and I keep bringing it up because I think about it all the time. It's called uh, plant awareness disparity. And it's this concept that humans don't see plants. We see them as part of the background. We don't like think about them as, as like unique individuals. Like we think about my cats, right? <laughs> like a cat and a tree are, are both individual living creatures, but we don't, think about them same for for whatever reason because we're humans and we have evolved in certain ways uh but when you think of so like we see a prairie uh, like a field of like blue bonnets and, and these indian paintbrushes and we just think oh a pretty landscape yeah. but what's really going on is like a battle of two <laughs> life forms like they're like fighting each other it's like a war it's really interesting um no i love that you said that i always say plant blindness is catching that's like one of my things I yeah do. So I like that that's something that's on your mind because um, it really yeah. is like people just don't. I was I was talking to some students and they were like, I didn't realize that plants were food and like food was were, were plants like this orange is a plant. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had I this this came up on an episode a while back. I was talking about uh, it was an episode about poison ivy, but the guest was like, maybe if I come on again, I'll do bananas. Do those count? And I'm like, yeah, bananas count. They're a plant, <laughs> right? But like we don't really we like f- food and plants kind of become separate for us. Or I, I deal with a lot when I'm trying. I want I want someone to be on the show. I try to get people who aren't necessarily all plant people on the show. And I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. come on the show. Tell me about a plant that means something to you. And my theory with the podcast is that. Everybody has a plant that means something to them because they are so integral to our lives. We just don't pay attention. And I'm like, well, 
I mean, what fruit do you like, right? Like, there's there's always a plant that means something to you, um, and and I think even more so than than animals. You know, how, on a day to day basis, how many other species of mammal do you interact with? I interact with three, right? <laughs> or you know, uh, you know, I, well, two species: human and cat. I was gonna say. Uh, uh... <laughs> Unless Human you know something cat. about your cats that I don't. <laughs> no, no I, I, <laughs> I interact with two different species of mammal on a daily basis when it comes to trees. Like, I mean, I'm wearing cotton. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm eating, you know, f- plants for breakfast. I, I go outside and I breathe air that was like generated from plants. Like it's, it's, it's like so much more important in their lives, but I feel like most people, it's, I don't know. There's interesting papers about why humans don't, but it's something I think once you become aware, it's a very, it's a very helpful thing and a very entertaining thing. And this, this podcast has helped me with that a lot. And now I think I'm annoying because I'm like, <laughs> I point at plants everywhere, right? I, I, yeah, you I might was, have the same issue. I was yeah. just going to bring that up. Like, I, I find it so much fun. And then I like, I'm walking with friends and they're just like, oh, what a pretty flower. And I'm like, that's invasive. You should rip it up. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> totally. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm just tearing it out of the ground. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yep. Uh, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange thing to get into plants. But anyway, uh, I feel like this was a really uh, awesome conversation and I feel like we could talk more about parasitic plants. Maybe, maybe before I go, before I go, one more parasitic plant that people might, can you name, what's, what's another parasitic plant that people like might know of, or maybe not? What's, what's, I mean, I feel like it's, it's not in our brains a lot. Okay. I have one and uh, it's a little bit like borderline, but especially because i can't say the name there's a pokemon called vilaplume vilaplume okay i think i know the one you're talking about i have it in my brain i don't know how to say it yeah i wasn't a pokemon kid uh it is based off of the parasitic plant rafflesia which is the world's largest flower and it only grows in southeast asia and it is completely endophytic it only is a flower the rest of the plant is entirely within its host so it's just this big stinky corpse flower um, and oh, the, that is the head of the Pokemon. It's that okay, yeah, totally. Rafflesia. That's the one that like looks like a weird alien flower thing. It's not, we're not talking about the the corpse flower, the the amorphophallus. Yeah. We're talking about the <laughs> wide one, right? The, the yeah. one that's like and yeah, I totally Rafflesia. Wow, um, that I didn't know that either about that one. That is so fascinating. It's it's wow. Man, it's really cool. On? Can't like, be grown in cultivation, so it, you can only see it as a Pokemon, or if you travel into the deep deep. Uh, jungles of Southeast Asia. So, whoa, that's cool. Okay, well, thanks for that. I think it's a, a great way to wrap up the show. And thanks for bringing us the first parasitic plant on Rootbound and and uh, uh, having a whole parasitic plant episode. Awesome. This is so much fun. Thank you for inviting me. Watch out for witchweed. A new parasitic plant that attacks corn, sugarcane, sorghum, and other plants. Witchweed is a parasitic plant that attacks corn, sorghum, sugarcane, rice, wheat, oats, barley, and more than 60 species of the grass and sedge families and some broad-leafed plants. This weed is a serious pest in South Africa and occurs in many other parts of the Eastern Hemisphere. It was first discovered in the Western Hemisphere in adjoining areas of North Carolina and South Carolina in 1956. Each year, intensive surveys have revealed some additional infestations in counties adjacent to those originally found infested. The area of known infestation is shown on the map below. The seeds, which are nearly microscopic, may lie dormant for 15 to 20 years. They may be spread by wind, water, or anything that moves seed-infested soil. A witchweed plant can produce up to half a million seeds. To germinate, a seed normally must be stimulated by secretions from roots of host plants. When the witchweed seedling starts to grow, its roots must contact, attach to, and penetrate the roots of a host. Otherwise, it dies. After its roots penetrate roots of a host, the witchweed depends on the host for food and water until it emerges from the soil. The shoot emerges from the soil about 30 days after germination. After emergence, the plant turns green and manufactures its own food, but continues to depend partially on the host for water and minerals. Flowering begins about 30 days after the seedling emerges. The first flowers appear near the base of the plant. Seed pods burst about four weeks after flowers appear. Seeds scatter over the soil for the next month or so. 
flowering and seed production continue until cold weather. The life cycle of the parasite, from germination to release of first seeds, takes 90 to 120 days. Notify your county agricultural agent if you find witchweed or a plant that you think may be witchweed. Do not move plants suspected of being witchweed. Request an on-the-farm identification from your county agent. Ask your county agent or state regulatory official to explain the cooperative state-federal eradication program. And watch out for witchweed. What you just heard there is a little bit of an illusion. You, you might have you might have heard it. Uh, so normally at the end of the show like this, I go and I try to find some kind of cool piece of tape that is relevant to the plant that we were talking about. And this time after Swifty was telling me about the story of Striga in North Carolina, I was like, oh, there's got to be some cool archival radio stuff from that era that I can use to put at the end of the show. And I looked very, very hard. I couldn't find it, but, you know, old radio is hard to find. You normally got to go to actual libraries and stuff. There's not a lot of it online. I did find reference to a video called Watch Out for Witchweed, but unfortunately I would have had to go down to the National Archives to get that. It has not been digitized yet, alas. And so uh, I did find a old flyer about Witchweed. And so what you just heard there was the uh, text of that flyer, Watch Out for Witchweed, uh, read by one of those fancy new uh, AI voices uh, inspired by some... Uh, old-fashioned educational videos, and uh, I think it turned out pretty well. It's, uh, you know, I don't yeah, anyway, (laughs) that's what I came up with for the end of the show. Um, But yes, it was a really great conversation uh, with Swifty, and if you want to hear more from Swifty about Striga and other cool stuff about plants, go check out uh, the Planthropology Podcast, episode number 92. Host uh, Vikram Baliga talks with Swifty. They get even more geeky about plants. It's really great. Also, on that episode, you will learn why she is called Swifty and also learn about her um, interesting social media handle, which is inexplicably old crotch face. So yes, go listen to that episode if you want to learn about that. And uh, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Swifty, a.k.a. Elizabeth Kelly. Swifty is a grad student and the assistant greenhouse manager at Penn State University. You can follow her on TikTok at Old Crotchface and on Instagram at Old Crotchface 2, I guess. Apparently, Old Crotchface was, was taken. Uh, yeah. If you like Rootbound and you want to support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including just telling a friend. Rootbound is proudly presented and passionately produced by parasitic plant podcaster, that's a lot of peace, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside and you're anywhere where there is striga, just make sure you clean your boots off before you go anywhere else. The most comical fruit? It's bananas!